Good morning. Excited to be with you guys this morning. Our last, our last sermon in connection with Christmas in the more direct context this morning. The passage to which I would like to call your attention this morning, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Chapter 2. It may be familiar because we uh, studied it last week. Luke, chapter 2, verse... Eight. Eight. Yeah, let's go for eight. Let's read together. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and we ask that you would teach us and instruct us now as we come to look at the scriptures this morning. Would you give us all that we need to know you more deeply, to appreciate you more fully, Lord, because we confess that we don't really have the fullness of understanding of what you have done for us. And we can never truly comprehend how great your love is for us and what you have shown to us at the cross. But yet, Lord, we want to know more and more each day. We want to be overwhelmed and overcome with that love that you have demonstrated towards us. And so, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, would you prepare us? Would you prepare our hearts to receive all that you intend for us to have this morning? Would you prepare us to celebrate your birth this season? Would you celebrate Christmas? Would you work in our hearts and change us? 
Would you move us on from our tendencies to get in patterns that are familiar, to break out of our mold, Lord, that we want to be a people who are looking at you fresh and new each day. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts. Help us to be diligent as we pursue you. Minister to us now as we look at your word. I love you. Amen. Well, the third sermon in our Advent series is a continuation on uh, themes that we begun a few weeks ago. As you know, when we first began looking at the Christmas story, we looked at uh, the peace that is brought about through Christmas, peace with man and God, brought about through uh, a child, brought about through this peacemaker who is called the Prince of Peace there in Isaiah 9. And then last week, as we looked at the scriptures, we looked at uh, this same text, Luke chapter 2. Um, but as we looked at this, we looked at uh, this idea of joy, right? These are the things that you kind of see on those like Christmas cards. There's a reason why. Because they are so connected to Christmas that you can't have the idea of Christmas without them. Uh, joy is found and brought about primarily through Christmas. This is what we studied last week as we looked at the announcement of this good news from the angels. That he's, uh, the, the message of the gospel is that there is uh, an angel showing up to this group of outcasts, this group of strangers, and telling them that there's going to be good news of great joy for all people. This Christmas brings about a way for us to have an attitude of joy that goes beyond our circumstance, that allows us to remain steadfast in the midst of hardships and trials when things don't feel great, but yet we can remain joyful, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, that he can be in seasons of suffering, but yet always rejoicing. That's something that can only come with joy. It doesn't come with happiness, but it comes with joy. And as we look at the same text this morning, we want to look at one more particular topic, that of hope. The hope that we find in Christmas. It's a little bit buried here, uh, but if you read careful, you'll discover that this is a thread that has existed from the very beginning. There's always hope. But when we say there's hope, what are we really talking about? Because we can, we can think about this in several different ways. There's ways that you can define hope, and particularly in our culture, uh, you know, you might be thinking about the turning over the new year and looking into the future and you say, uh, well, I hope I, I hope I start the new year off well. That's this wishful thinking or, you know, maybe you start to get concerned about some things a little bit more and you're thinking, well, I hope I get a tax return, right? It's, you're not really sure if that's going to happen there, but it's, there's, there's like kind of this potential uh, wishful thinking. There's some, a little bit of excitement there perhaps uh, or maybe a little bit dread depending upon your situation. Or maybe you're looking at uh, today's slate of football games and you're thinking, I hope my team plays well so that way they can go to the Super Bowl, right? You might be w hoping and wishing for uh, the execution of these 
ideas. But as we look at the scriptures, what we find is that uh, these ideas of hope surely exist in the Bible, but there's also a hope that goes beyond this common expectancy that we normally have, what hope would be. Biblical hope is an expression of desire, something that you want or, or hope, but it's paired with an expectation of outcome. It's not, just, I'm, it's not just wishful thinking, but you're expecting, not just wishing, but you're expecting a certain outcome. You're saying, I, have, I am wanting this thing to come to pass, and I am expecting it to come to pass. This is why. Christian hope is born out of desires um, that are rooted in wanting something good from God. Desiring something good from God. But then Christian hope also operates in expectation of receiving that something good from God. So it's desiring something good from God, but then it's, ex then it's expecting to receive something good from God. But then it's also acting in faith because it's trusting that God will be faithful to provide that something good. So there's a desire, there's an expectation, and then there's also this uh, confidence or faith that you're counting on God's character. This is, a different, uh, this is a different way to hope because God's when God gives something or when we are counting on God, he doesn't fail. So the expectation and the outcome are married together in such a way that you know it will be delivered. Right? There's some of us who, around this time of year, you are maybe doing some Christmas shopping online, and it says there, guaranteed delivery date, whatever that date is. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. Right? Even their guaranteed delivery date, it'll fail you. Even it just doesn't work. The, what they're trying to tell you is you can count on us. But oftentimes, Maybe they got it out on time, but the process of delivery or, you know, the delivery service maybe messed it up or maybe there was weather or there was some other external circumstance that prevented that from being delivered on the day that you wanted it to be delivered on. You had a guarantee, but the guarantee didn't hold up. But when we look to God, when we look to him in hope, he controls the outcome. He's the giver of good gifts. He controls the outcome, and so we have to ask and desire good things from God. We have to act in expectation that he will give to us, but then we also look to him in faith that he will provide that which uh, we are asking him for. Right? This is different than asking in uh, the context of you know, treating God like a genie, because you're asking God for his good, not your good, his good. This is the idea of Christian hope. Now, we find that Christmas is all about the origination of Christian hope for the believer. And it's what we need as Christians to live this life. We need peace with God that we saw in the previous week. We need the joy of Christ, the joy of salvation. That's where we're ultimately aiming in the presence of God as fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. But now we need hope for the future. And we need this hope because it tells us that God will be faithful to his character and that how we are living now, all the things that we're living in the midst of now, those things that don't make sense to us that we say, I see that God is who he says he is. I see that he's done what he said he would do, but everything here on the earth doesn't quite seem right. There's still some things that feel a little bit broken. 
And he's still at work in, in us. He's changing us and transforming us. And God's people have always been the people who have been marked by this hope. They've always been marked by this hope. And God has always given them signs of hope by which they can look to the future and they can see that he will be faithful. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you see in the very beginning, God was in relationship with man. They were there in the garden having fellowship, but at a certain point, as as Adam and Eve fell into sin, they uh, rebelled against God and then were set outside of the garden. And there was an angel placed there to separate them from God. There was an angel placed there to separate them from God. But before they were kicked out of the garden, they were given hope. They were given the gospel. The very first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. That God would make everything right. That he would crush the serpent. That God would make everything right. They have this hope to look to. And this hope is connected to God being with them, dwelling with them. And so it is that they're separated from God, but yet hoping to come back together with God. Hoping in that promise that God would keep, that he would bring his people back together. If you look through Israel's history, this has always been their attitude. God was always trying to get back to his people because his people could not come to him. Even after he raises up Moses and and rescues the children of Israel out of Egypt, they go out and they're wandering around in the wilderness for a little bit. They come to this mountain called Sinai there and the Lord begins to meet with his people and set up some laws by which they can relate to him. But at a certain point, he sets out a book of instructions for a building. He says, hey guys, like here's some great rules for how you should live and keep yourself safe. Also, can you guys build something for me? Right? He says this particularly, he asks for them to build a sanctuary, a dwelling place. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, he says, let them make me a sanctuary. He asks for this. He says this because he says that I may dwell in their midst. He's like, there's going to be a way for me to come as close as possible. I want to get back to my people. I'm trying to make my way back there. Right now I'm on the mountain. I want to come and dwell among them. They still won't be able to come near to me because of this idea of of sin. They've offended me and the sacrifices will keep them uh, in fellowship with me. And there will be this set, the, the point of the sanctuary was to set up there this structure by which they would relate to God. But God's attitude, his heart, is to come and dwell with his people. You fast forward a couple chapters into Exodus chapter 29, and he says this, the Lord speaking, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So he says, I want to come and dwell among them, and I want them to be among them so that way they know that I am their God and they are my people, that we are in relationship together just like it was in the Garden of Eden. This is what God has always wanted, to be near to his people. And his people, for the most part, have always wanted to be near to him. They wanted to draw near to the mountain until they saw how righteous and holy God was, and then like, whoa, 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 okay, we're going to keep a little bit of distance. But even in that distance, there's still this draw. They know that they are only complete in the presence of God. And so we've always pressed into wanting to know God more. 
In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah he, he puts out this prayer in, in chapter 64. He asks the Lord specifically, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He's like, God, I, I'm praying to you. I know you're up there. If you would just, just shred open the skies, if you would just pull back that curtain, if you would just tear it in two and come down, you would make everything right. He says, oh, that you would come rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. There's this attitude of, of both God wanting to get to his people and his people requesting, God, please come and be with us, dwell among us. It's always been this request, this desire. And this desire of God's people goes all the way back to the very first sign of hope that God has given to his people in Genesis chapter 3, the proclamation of the gospel. That with that bad news that they were getting kicked out because of their sin comes the proclamation of the gospel that he will crush the head of the serpent and that all things will be made right someday and that he will come and dwell with his people again. The proclamation of the gospel is this first sign of hope that the Lord leaves for his people. But as we come to the text this morning, we have both this second sign that we're given that we pick up here. A sign of hope that is again in keeping with the gospel. We read in verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. He was like, here it is, the beginning of the gospel, the proclamation. I'm bringing you good news. That's, that's what the gospel means, good news of great joy. We talked about that last week. That will be for all people. And then he says, here's the good news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior, Christ the Lord. This is God incarnate. Here it is. He has come down. He has come down. He's no longer far from you, but he has come and is now among you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Right? And then we get the second sign a sign of hope, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swatting cloths and lying in a manger. A sign of hope, a sign of promise, a sign of rescue for the future, a sign that would point back to that sign that was given in the proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. Hope then now connects to, here is, here is the snake crusher. Here is the one who will destroy sin. Here is the one who will rule and reign. If you want hope, look. Look to the manger. Look and see the baby. It's not the typical sign of hope. When we think of hope, again, we're thinking of something very powerful and strong and mighty. So, you know, probably most people who are thinking this are thinking, look, 
hope and they're, th- they're thinking like a massive army is going to come rolling over the hillside and like this, all these like legions of angels ready to like just to like wreck everybody. But the Lord works in this absolutely subversive way to overturn that which is most powerful through, through the work of a helpless child who cannot defend himself, who has to rely on others to feed him, to care for him. So if you want hope, look, look to the manger. This is the proclamation of the good news, a sign of hope, the dawning of a new day, the beginning of a new kingdom. I imagine that maybe this was a little bit anticlimactic there. I mean, you have, in one sense, some excitement that, like, this bright light shows up out of nowhere, and you have this one angel who's like, I got great news, and he's, like, heralding this good news. He's like, there's a Savior is going to be born, and he's, here's the sign. You're going to find him, like, lying in the manger. And then, like, after that one angel gets done saying that, we're told, in verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Like all of a sudden, it's just like one, and all of a sudden, everyone just goes like, like a whole bunch of them, like this massive wall of like angels who are just like super pumped, multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Like if you weren't convinced that this is a big deal, then by like, okay, like this is like a little bit strange, an angel's here, he's showing up, he's telling me these things, like a sign of hope, it's a baby, and then all of a sudden, now we've got like, the, like extra fireworks and like all this celebration. What's happening here is that as soon as we get this first sign, then we get a response to the proclamation of the gospel. So the gospel comes forth, good news of great joy for all people. Christ is born, he is Savior, he is Lord. It's, it's a statement that's made. He's a sign of hope, you're going to find him in the manger. What we don't see immediately is the shepherds going, hmm. We are not given that chance because we're not intended to see that. We're intended to see that the proper response to the proclamation of the gospel is worship. They say the good news. The angel declares the good news. And then out of nowhere, all of a sudden, we see the angels show up, proclaiming God's glory and his character. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What the angels are doing through their act of worship in proclaiming to God his, his praise, they're also simultaneously evangelizing again. Because that's what evangelism is. You're sharing the good news, and then you're reflecting on God's character, and you're talking about how amazing God is. And so they give the prototype for how one ought to respond to the gospel. You hear the good news. You hear that there's a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You hear that there's a sign, and this is a sign of hope. And then you worship. We find that the shepherds seem to get it. They seem to understand. We read in verse 15, When the angels went away from them into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So two things 
happened here as the result of them hearing and witnessing this act of worship. First, the shepherds seek out Jesus as a result of hearing the good news. They say, they, they might have something. They might be on to something. They've told us the good news. They told us that there is a Savior. They told us that it is Christ the Lord, that it is God incarnate. They told us that he is worthy of our praise. We should go check this out. They hear this, and they seek out Jesus as a result of hearing the gospel and witnessing this act of worship. They're compelled. Now, they're not just sitting around. They're not just like, like maybe that's right. They believe that this could be true, and so they go. Now, why do they go? Well, they recognize here, we're told, let's go and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They recognize it's the Lord who is initiating, the Lord who is drawing them, the Lord who is putting this spark in their hearts to say, look at how amazing Jesus is. This isn't a message that belongs to man. This isn't a motivation that is birthed with man. But this, the, the preaching, the proclamation, the work of the gospel, the seed of the gospel is initiated, is overseen, is authored by God. He is drawing these men to him. He is asking the shepherds to come and follow. And they go, verse 16, they went with haste. They go fast. They're not, they're not like, well, you know, like, let's make sure like all the sheep are tucked in. Let's run all our errands and chores. They hear the good news and they're like, we got to go. We got to go see it. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. This is how the gospel works. The good news comes. You preach and proclaim the gospel. You share the gospel and you tell others, hey, um, come and see this. And so it says, they went and saw it. They went. Go and see. Go and see. And they went and saw. And when they do see it, they understand the truth. They understand that this truly is the hope. That God has given. This is the beginning that God will be made one with man again. That there will no longer be this separation. That this is the beginning of this reconciliation. They go and see. And when they go and see, then something triggers in their heart where it seems like they come to understanding the fullness of what God wanted them to see. Because then they turn from people who have gone to see to people who are now going and telling. So they go from a place of being outsiders to people who are becoming insiders. They believe the truth of the gospel. Then as a result of believing the truth of the gospel, they say, other people have got to know about this too. I've got to tell other people about this. It sparks within them a heart of evangelism that they also have to share the good news. Right? We're told, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They made known this saying. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Like they're just going out telling anybody and everybody. 
They communicate it back to Mary and Joseph, which, which bolsters their faith, which builds them up. They go and communicate it out to their other shepherds' friends and the people who are in the city, and they're just like, you guys will not believe this. This is amazing. We've got a Savior, Christ the Lord. He will give you joy. He will give you peace. He is here to make man right with God. He is the way by which man will come to be in fellowship with God once again. They go and see. They go and tell. They believe the gospel. They proclaim the gospel. And then, again, the third component, worship. It's always the same cycle that keeps happening. Someone preaches and proclaims the gospel, there's a response to the gospel, and then you worship. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So she's treasuring them up. She's like, this is wonderful. To believe the truth of the gospel, to have these little breadcrumbs back to the gospel in her heart so that she can revisit these things in times of hardship. That she can count on the Lord's faithfulness. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. This duality again, they've heard and they've witnessed. As it had been told them, they worship again. And so we find in Luke 2 that the incarnation is this second sign of hope. It's this thing that points us to the Lord's faithfulness, to the Lord's desire to be with man, to dwell among man. The Lord continues to give his people signs of hope. And as Jesus grows, we find many along the way. But we find that the next sign of hope is found in the work of Christ at the cross. We have the good news of Jesus who has come and dwelt among us. We were once a people who were, who were without hope. We were living apart from Christ. We were far from him. But yet, we have hope because Jesus came. He condescended. He came in the incarnation, in flesh, and lived and died and rose again. We have this hope, this hope that God's people would look to, a sign of hope. For when there are moments of discouragement, a sign of hope for when we remember that we were once far from him, but yet we have been brought near by his work. Peter puts it this way in his first epistle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Right? This is kind of like what happens there with the shepherds. Let's go and see this thing which he has done. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We find the cross, the work of Jesus, the resurrection, is this hope that we look to. This is always something that we're, we're little breadcrumbs there in the life of Jesus. Even his followers were picking up on it. Early in Jesus' ministry, he shows up on the scene, and he's looking around, for followers. And he calls his original followers. He calls this guy called Philip. He finds Philip, and he tells him this straight up, follow me. He says, 
Hey, Philip, I know where you've been. I've seen what you've done. I see where you've been. You don't have to explain anything. I just want you to follow me. You don't have to make yourself right. You don't have to fix yourself. I'm going to handle all that. Just follow me. And Philip says, okay. He follows him. Jesus doesn't make him explain all this stuff. He doesn't make him jump through all these hoops. He just says, follow me. This invitation. We find in Philip, through this invitation, is transformed. He sees Jesus. He understands who Jesus is. Now, we read in John's gospel that Philip found this other guy. So they're walking along. He finds this guy called Nathaniel. And he tells him, hey, we have found, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. They're like, this sign of hope, this, this person we've been waiting for, we found him. The shepherds have found him already. Philip has found him already. And now he's, Philip is now telling Nathaniel. We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. He's like, look, we are working through the signs of hope that are throughout the scriptures. And we see that we have found the one in whom we should hope. He tells him, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? He's like, look, I know that Nazareth is like the worst town. It's like a terrible place. Like, no, but like nothing good's going to come out of there. It's not a prominent city. It's just really like a terrible, like it's a dump of a place. Is anything good going to come out of there? What does Philip say? He doesn't say, well, you know, there, I, I knew a guy once who, who had some great things in Nazareth and like I have a friend who's, you know, great at ceramics and I know a great woodworker. He doesn't try to make a case for Nazareth. He makes a case for Jesus. And what does he say? He just says, come and see. Because he knows that when you pursue Jesus, Jesus is going to speak for himself. You can come with whatever expectations you want, but Jesus will exceed all of your expectations. You can come with whatever you think that Jesus is going to be. He will destroy all of it. He's better than all of it. And so he continues on in the same attitude that we find throughout, uh, throughout this thread that we've been following. Come and see. Go and see. Go and see. Pointing him to Jesus, saying, here is whom the law and the prophets have testified of. A sign of hope. But then as you move through the life of Jesus, he continues to even testify of himself. After his work at the cross, after his resurrection, he is walking on the road to Emmaus with some men, and they don't know who he is, and he's explaining who he is. Then he, and he reveals himself to them. He shares, oh, like, I, you know, they, he reveals that he is Jesus, that he is the one who they were speaking of. He sees his followers, and he says this to them in Luke 24, 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day, rise from the dead. Right? He's like, this, this is a part of it. The sign of hope is that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead. 
and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You were witnesses of these things, right? So he tells them straight up, here's the job of the Messiah. I did the job. You are witnesses of these things. You have seen them. You have absorbed what has been done. The sign of hope has been delivered to you. You have the understanding of what it takes to be delivered from Satan, sin, and death. You have it. You are witnesses. And then what does he say? Because you are witnesses, you have to then go and proclaim in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So it goes from a go and see again to a go and tell. You now know. Go and tell. Proclaim who he is. Share his name. Explain that he is God. Explain his works. A sign of hope for others who do not have hope. But again, he doesn't, he doesn't send us out on our own. Because in the, very, in the very next verse, he says, And behold, I am sending you, sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he's like, you're not going to go out alone. You're going to go out with the promise of the Father. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. You're going to go out empowered by the Holy Spirit. But stay where you're at until you receive the Holy Spirit. So he's telling them like, hey, you guys got to stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. He's, then he's going to you know, get to this in Pentecost. And you see what happens. But Jesus connects, again, this thread of God being with his people to the gospel. God was with his people in the garden. They sinned and rebelled against him. That thread was broken. They were kicked out of the garden, but before they left, they were given the sign of hope. He's been working ever since to get back to his people. He has made a way for his people to get back in fellowship with him so he could dwell among them. He began this by coming ultimately to dwell among his people in flesh to do a job that nobody could do except for him. Then he went to the cross on our behalf after living a perfect life for our sake, paying for our sin at the cross, rising from the dead on the third day as he says, as is written, and that then we should preach we should proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. We should tell the people about it. We should give hope to others, and we will do so when empowered with the Holy Spirit. Now, he has made this, he has, he has wanted to dwell with us so intensely that he came from his position. He didn't have to, but he came from his position outside of time and space, and entered into our circumstance, our situation, to pay a price that we could not pay. He did this because he wanted to dwell with us. So he has accomplished this work by making peace with God and man through his work at the cross. He's given us his joy by giving us the fullness of himself and inviting us into his family but beyond that, the scriptures tell us that he has given us another sign of hope and that he has come and dwelt among us, not just in the person of his son, but in the giving of his Holy Spirit to his people. 
So God the Son has dwelt among us on the earth, but then God the Spirit dwells in the believer. So it went from God, you were walking with God in the garden at one point, to now as you trust in Christ for salvation, God the Spirit literally dwells in you. Like it went from like you have to be as far away from God as possible to like as close to God as possible. Like he cleared every barrier, he moved everything out of the way. Every single thing. And so our our next sign of hope that he has given us is the Holy Spirit. This is all brought about through Christmas. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. So Jesus coming among us, the love of God made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So here's the miracle of Christmas. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, to pay for our sin. But then we have this sign of hope that is given to us in the incarnation, that is given to us in his Holy Spirit, and again, stretches back into Israel's history. Ezekiel chapter 36, I will put my spirit within you. It's a promise that we are given all the way back. In the Old Testament, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Because guess what? If you don't have his spirit in you, you don't want to walk in his statutes and you don't want to obey his rules. You want to do your own thing. And so if you have any inkling of a feeling of wanting to do, uh, wanting to obey God in the least bit, it's because he's put his spirit in you. It's because he's given you of his spirit. And his spirit is a sign of hope. It's a sign that we belong to him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So our sign of hope is that we've received his Spirit, that we belong to him, that you can have confidence, that you can know that he dwells within you. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 21, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, right? There's the hope, the guarantee, God's guarantee, it doesn't fail. It's it's not something that's going to break. It's not like that package that you ordered that says it's going to come on time, but because of weather, it gets delayed. Right? There's nothing more irritating than that. You think you're going to get something at a certain time, and then it just fails you. But God doesn't fail you. He's given us his spirit as a guarantee that we belong to him. And so when we have those moments, we say, you know, I might not be a part of his family. I might be far from him. I might not be, be with him. We can remember that he has given us his spirit as a guarantee. Romans chapter 8, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, right? There it is. It's pretty straight up. 
if you do not have the Holy Spirit, like you're just not a Christian. Because in order to be a Christian, you have to have the Holy Spirit in you to confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul's getting at here. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. We have this sign of hope that he will empower us, that he will help us to continue on to that day when we are face-to-face with Christ. When we look to that future, when we are walking through this life and things just feel hard and difficult, when we feel that we're starting to get beaten down, we can look to that joy that we have in Christ that's brought about through Christmas, but we can also have hope in Christ. We can have hope in the future. We can have hope in his faithfulness, and we can finally have hope in his return that we will see him face to face, and one day, all things will be made right. We will see him again. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The hope that we have, that Paul tells us in Titus 2, is that we look, we wait, we have confident expectation in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not like wishful thinking hope, not like, well, like it would be cool if Jesus came back, but like we expect it to happen. We desire this good thing to happen. We expect that it will happen and that we are confident that God will provide this moment in his timing. It's a guarantee that has not yet been delivered to us. We hope, not like we have to be convinced, but we hope, we know that it will come. But we've not yet received it. We're just counting down the days. It's a surprise that we will receive in the future. And so we set our hope on the second coming of our Lord. It's going to be good. We finish with these verses from Revelation 21 completes the, the cycle for us where man is finally and fully united with God once more. Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Right? He doesn't say, Behold, the dwelling place of man is with God. He says, the dwelling place of God is with man. He's like, God continues to come to us. We don't go to him. He comes to us. How much he loves us, how much he desires to be with us, how much he wants to draw near to us. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that what he said all the way back in Exodus? I want to dwell among you, and I will be their God, and you will be my people. It's the same thing. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. It's all gone. All of the brokenness, all of the hardship, all of the suffering, all the anxieties, all the worries wiped away. 
The former things have passed away. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So here's the statement. I am making all things new, which is basically what the story of the gospel is. Things are broken, I'm going to make them all new. I'm not going to put patches on them. We're going to fix it. We're going to start over. I'm going to make all things new. He makes this statement, I'm going to, to make all things new. But then, curiously enough, recorded for us is this. Also, he said, write this down. <laughs> Here's what I want you to know. I'm going to make all things new. Write this down. Why? For these words are trustworthy and true. He makes the statement and says, I'm going to make all things new. Here's a good thing that I'm going to give to you. You should desire this good thing. You should live in expectation of this good thing. And you should have faith. He connects it to his trustworthiness and the truth of this matter. He doesn't say this is wishful thinking. He says count on it. Bank on it. It's going to happen. He doesn't just throw it out there as like, wouldn't that be nice if we could do this? Or like, maybe one day this will happen. He particularly says, uh, make a note. This will for sure happen. It's trustworthy and true. Who says that? You only say that if you yourself are truth embodied. If everything that you say can be certain. As much good intentions as, as we often have when we say things and we want them to be true, we can't control everything. But he, he can control these things. He is Lord of all, ruler of all. And he leaves these continual moments for us, these signs of hope along the way, because he knows that the road is narrow, that it's long, that it's difficult, and there are few who find it. But we need these signs of hope as we move along together. We need these, these signs that pop up, these milestones that say, oh yeah, there's the resurrection. There's God's faithfulness in my friend's life. There's the promise of his return. There's the reminder that we are filled with his Holy Spirit, the seal, the guarantee for our lives. He leaves these signs of hope for us along the way to remind us that when we are likely to be faithless, that he will remain faithful. He will be trustworthy and true. And so this this is what Christmas is about, giving us a sign of hope, a sign of hope for the future. For these shepherds initially, the sign to them was this child lying in a manger, which to us is like, cool, a kid. But for them was something that, you know, set off a chain reaction, looking all the way to the beginning of time and into the future of God's promises. Something that connected God's thread that he put in, in, in line with Israel and then branched out into our time. And so we're all connected through his work, through his signs of hope that he's left. We discover more and more each day.
Not just that he's left of signs of hope for us, but that he's faithful again and again. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness and love towards us and that you have given us this entire narrative. You've given us your word that testifies to your kindness, that testifies to your love, to your generosity, to the hope that you have laid out for us so that we can trust in your character, we can trust in your work, we can trust that you will be faithful to your word. And so, Lord, we look to that sign of hope in the manger this morning. That you would come and humble yourself to depend on the needs of others or on the provision of others, to depend on on to come so, so so weak, really, to come in such a way that would demonstrate how much you loved us. And so, Lord, we we rejoice in that work and we celebrate you not just today, not just on Christmas, but each day we celebrate your faithfulness. And so, Lord, would you, be, would you be glorified in your church as we continue to set you, uh, set you on high, to lift you up and exalt you. You are worthy of all praise. We're thankful that you've left us these signs of hope in the garden and the proclamation of the first gospel. We're thankful that you've left us signs of hope in the giving of the law. You've left us signs of hope in the tabernacle, you've left us signs of hope in your continued faithfulness to Israel as they strayed from you. We're thankful that you've left us signs of hope in, uh, in your incarnation. We're thankful that you've left us signs of hope in your approach in dealing with sinners and tax collectors and your signs of hope in dealing with the Pharisees. And we're thankful that you've left us signs of hope as you've suffered there in prayer in Gethsemane, ready to pour out your life for ours. We're thankful that you've left us signs of hope at the cross and in your resurrection. We're thankful that you've left us signs of hope in the giving of your Holy Spirit. We're thankful that you have continued to to lead us into a place where we can be refreshed and encouraged. There's nowhere that we can look that we could say, you don't care about us. There's nowhere that we can look that that your presence is, is not there. But everywhere that we look, every place we we gaze upon, Lord, is filled with your kindness towards us. Lord, open our eyes to see those things. And as we hear the good news, as we hear the proclamation of the gospel, as we hear who you are, Lord, would you cause us to be a people who see you and then go and tell, who see you and respond in worship. And so, Lord, we want to do that now. We pray that you would be glorified as we set, set our focus upon you to sing your praises. We love you. Amen.